BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in sultry Savannah, Georgia, this is Obscure Season 3, Weathering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief and Georgianologist Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman Esquire, Southern Bound today. While I'm already in the Deep South, I'm heading deeper, deeper into the South. The wife and I are taking a road trip. Probably just after I finish this recording, we're driving down to Miami, Florida, for reasons which I'm not quite going to disclose just yet because I don't know what the outcome of this trip will be, but suffice to say, there could be an outcome and, uh, you know, things in my life may change a little bit. Um, not professionally, of course, because nothing ever changes for me professionally, but who knows? So I'm heading down, we're driving down to Miami. It's about seven and a half hours, I suppose. But, you know, I've got one of those robot cars that has to be recharged. So that'll, that'll eat up some more time, but I don't mind that. You know, you're driving along and then, hey, you're driving for a few hours and then it says, hey, buddy, you know, I need to rest and, and recharge. And, uh, and then you say to the car, you know what, buddy? So do I. And so you, you park, you plug in, maybe you grab something to eat, you know, you wait for the car to recharge. It's kind of a nice way to stretch your legs. It doesn't, it doesn't have the kind of a one night stand element of a, of a gas station visit. You know, you're there cuddling for a while and it's, it's, it's kind of nice. So yeah, we'll probably have to do that two or three times on the way down to Miami. And then uh, we'll be there for exactly uh, about 24 hours. And then we'll drive on back. Yes, it's a mystery. Why would he be going to Miami? Yes, indeed, it's a mystery. But, uh, you know, some things I just got to play a little close to the vest because it's exciting. It's exciting for you, you know. I could tell you right now, but it's it's more exciting for you if there's a mystery involved. I mean, what could it possibly be? Who knows, you know. I know, you don't. Gee, and you, you know, you're thinking to yourself, why Miami? What could possibly be in Miami? Is he going to adopt a Cuban refugee? No, no, nothing like nothing of the sort. Um, who knows? You know, but that's that's what we're doing today. And so I thought before we leave on our little road trip, I'd record an episode of Obscure. What else is happening in this world? Well, it's election day here in Georgia. And uh, I think we're all anticipating the good Reverend Raphael Warnock. Defeating my candidate, uh, Herschel Walker, I like him because like him, I'm an NFL player, or he's an NFL player, and, uh, you know, nine years for me, two rings, Herschel also had a terrific career, and so we're, we're all crossing our fingers for Herschel Walker to win today and be victorious against those godless Democrats. Anything else going on? Not so much, I suppose. Might as well get right on into the book. Well, last... We left the good Americans at Wuthering Heights. Papa was had taken ill, you know, and, and we always feel 
a little bit worried when somebody takes ill in one of these 19th century books because chances are very, very high that they're not going to survive. I mean, nobody survives even a case of the sniffles in one of these novels. You know, they just, they wake up one day, they're feeling a little sad, and then they drop dead. I mean, that's what happened with her mother, you know. She was, she was bummed out, and it killed her. Well, now, poor Edgar Linton has himself a, a, a malaise, you know, some sort of cold, some sort of infirmity. Hasn't quite been defined yet, but he's, he's laid abed, and, and uh, Ellen is basically saying to Kathy Jr., you know, if he dies, it's probably your fault. And she's saying, hey, I, I care about Papa more than I care even about myself. Why, when I pray at night, I pray that he dies first. That's how much I love him. Her reasoning being that she would rather uh, be miserable without him than him without her. We've all had similar thoughts, but the way it was expressed was maybe a little bit callous. Um, and that just proves that I love him better than myself. And then Ellen says, good words, but deeds must prove it also. And after he is well, remember, you don't forget resolutions formed in the hour of fear. That's where we left it last time, with those resolutions formed in the hour of fear. And so let us pick it up again here, chapter 22 of Wuthering Heights. As we talked, we neared a door that opened on the road. Wait, we neared a door that opened on the road. What does that mean? A door. I got, oh, I see. I think like a fence. You know, it's like they're walking along and they see like a fence, and like a wall, and then there's a door. In it. And my young lady, lightning into sunshine again, climbed up and seated herself on top of the wall, reaching over to gather some hips that bloomed scarlet on the summit branches of the wild rose trees, shadowing the highway side. The lower fruit had disappeared, but only birds could retouch the upper except from Kathy's present station. In stretching to pull them, her hat fell off, and as the door was locked, she proposed scrambling down to recover it. I bid her be cautious, lest she get a fall, and she nimbly disappeared. So she's, she's you know, she's like Humpty Dumpty, she's on top of a wall, her hat has a somewhat gentle fall, and then she slips onto the other side of the wall, to recover it. Now, what is she going to discover on the other side of that wall? Somehow, it's got to be Heathcliff, you know? Whenever, whenever, whenever you turn your head in this town, there's Heathcliff. But the return was no such easy matter. The stones were smooth and neatly cemented, and the rose bushes and blackberry stragglers could yield no assistance in reascending. I, like a fool, didn't recollect that till I heard her laughing and exclaiming, Ellen, you'll have to fetch the key, or else I must run round to the porter's lodge. I can't scale the ramparts on this side. Well, I guess you didn't find Heathcliff. Not yet. So, uh, yeah. I don't know where... So, is it still their property, maybe? Because how, how is she going to get the key? Stay where you are, I answered. I have my bundle of keys in my pocket. Yeah, I suppose. Perhaps I may manage to open it. If not, I'll go. Catherine amused herself with dancing to and fro before the door while I tried all the large keys in succession. I had applied the last and found that none would do. So, repeating my desire that she would remain there, I was about to hurry home as fast as I could when an approaching sound arrested me. 
It was the trot of a horse. Kathy's dance stopped, and in a minute, the horse stopped also. Who is that? I whispered. Ellen, I wish you could open the door, whispered back my companion anxiously. Oh, Miss Linton, cried a deep voice, the riders. I'm glad to meet you. Don't be in haste to enter, for I have an explanation to ask and obtain, and by gosh and by golly, if it isn't, I shan't speak to you, Mr. Heathcliff. Bum, bum, bum. My God, just when we thought we were safe from his clutches, there he is appearing on a dark horse. On a thunderous night, behind a wall. Well, it isn't a thunderous night, and there's no description of his horse, but, you know, I want to add a little bit of drama to this tale. I shan't speak to you, Mr. Heathcliff, answered Catherine. Papa says you are a wicked man, and you hate both him and me, and Ellen says the same. That is nothing to the purpose, said Heathcliff. He it was. I don't hate my son, I suppose. And it is concerning him that I demand your attention. Yes, you have cause to blush. Two or three months since, were you not in the habit of writing to Linton, making love in play, eh? You deserved both of you flogging for that. You especially, the elder and less sensitive as it turns out. I've got your letters, and if you give me any pertness, I'll send them to your father. I presume you grew weary of the amusement and dropped it, didn't you? Well, you dropped Linton with it into a slough, slow, slough, slough, oh yes, slough, S-L-O-U-G-H, of despond, a slough of despond. And it's interesting, he's capitalized both S and D. You know, I'm just going to look up what slough of despond, if there's something that I'm not understanding about that other than the... Uh, actual uh, slough of despond, okay? A state of hopeless depression. The slough of despond is a fictional deep bog in John Bunyan's allegory, The Pilgrim's Progress, I see, into which the protagonist Christian sinks under the weight of his sins and his sense of guilt for them. Well, you know who belongs in a slough of despond. Is it slough or slough? Slough of despond. Oh, a slough. My goodness, that's not what I was expecting. Slough of despond. A slough of despond. Oh, screwed that up. Well, you've dropped Linton with it into a slough of despond. And, uh, you know, if anybody should feel guilt for their sins, it is this fella, but he apparently does not. He was in earnest, in love, really. As true as I live, he's dying for you, breaking his heart at your fickleness, not figuratively, but actually. Though Herdon has made him a standing jest for six weeks, and I have used more serious measures and attempted to frighten him out of his idiocy. He gets... <laughs> I have used more serious measures and attempted to frighten him out of his idiocy. Well, well I mean... How do you do that? How do you frighten somebody out of idiocy? If anything, frightening them makes them more idiotic. I mean, that's been the case in this country since time immemorial. All you got to do is frighten somebody and they turn into a fucking idiot. You know, that's the entire strategy of one of our political parties. 
He gets worse daily, and he'll be under the sod before summer unless you restore him. How can you lie so glaringly to the poor child? I called from the inside. Pray ride on. How can you deliberately get up to such paltry falsehoods? Miss Cathy, I'll knock the lock off with a stone. You won't believe that vile nonsense. You can feel in yourself it is impossible that a person should die for the love of a stranger. Well, you know, what happened with Cathy Sr. there? If she didn't die for the love, well, if not a stranger, I guess not a stranger at all, but, you know, a broken heart won't kill you, they say, and yet it certainly killed her mother. I was not aware that there were eavesdroppers, muttered the detected villain. Worthy Miss Dean, I like you, but I don't like your double dealing, he added aloud. How could you lie so glaringly as to affirm I hated the poor child and invent bugbear stories to terrify her from my doorstones? Catherine Linton, the very name warms me, my bonny lass. I shall be from home all this week. Go and see if I have not spoken truth. Do, there's a darling. Just imagine your father in my place and Linton in yours. Then think how you would value your careless lover— if he refused to stir a step to comfort you, when your father himself entreated him, and don't from pure stupidity fall into the same error. I swear on my salvation he's going to his grave, and none but you can save him. The lock gave way, and I issued out. I swear Linton is dying, repeated Heathcliff, looking hard at me, and grief and disappointment are hastening his death. Nelly, if you won't let her go, you can walk over yourself, but I shall not return till this time next week, and I think your master himself would scarcely object to her visiting her cousin. Come in, said I, taking Cathy by the arm and half forcing her to re-enter, for she lingered, viewing with troubled eyes the features of the speaker, too stern to express his inward deceit. I mean, I believe it, you know, but here's the thing about Linton— he was always going to die, wasn't he? He was always sickly and in poor health and stooped, you know, like the crook of a shepherd. And sure, I mean, you know, when it comes to young love, let's be honest, I think boys are maybe even more sensitive than gals when it comes to young love, you know? I mean, yes, a girl will gnash her teeth and and uh, beat her head against a pillow and and decry all that is unjust in this world, but, you know... A boy will turn into an incel. You know, a boy will just, he'll let it ruin his whole life. I don't know that girls are quite like that. Girls, I feel like, get over love a little bit quicker than boys. And maybe I'm just making a sweeping generalization based on my own sad, sad experiences and my own nights of torpor, but who knows? Who knows indeed? So, you know, he's come there with the information that young Linton is drawing near his death as a result of a broken heart, and he himself, that Heathcliff, had certainly instigated that relationship. He said he was going to do it. We know that he had a hand in writing those letters. We knew his plan was going according to whatever machinations he had designed in his evil little mind, and then when the letters stopped, well, his plans were dashed, were they not? And of course he blames Catherine instead of himself. 
So with that, let's take a little break and we will return in a moment here on Obscure. Back on Obscure, Heathcliff has, uh, you know, just dropped a bomb on poor Kathy Jr. Saying his son, the erstwhile love of her life, is laying abed, dying of a broken heart, gasping, struggling for air, willing himself into an early grave because she ended their writing letter campaign. Heathcliff's about to go off on business for a week, but before he does, he pushed his horse close and, bending down, observed, Miss Catherine, I'll own to you that I have little patience with Linton, and Hareton and Joseph have less. I'll own that he's with a harsh set. He pines for kindness as well as love, and a kind word from you would be his best medicine. Don't mind Mrs. Dean's cruel cautions, but be generous and contrive to see him. He dreams of you day and night, and cannot be persuaded that you don't hate him, since you neither write nor call. I closed the doors and rolled the stone to assist the loosened lock in holding it, and spreading my umbrella, I drew my charge underneath, for the rain began to drive through the moaning branches of the trees, and warned us to avoid delay." Our hurry prevented any comment on the encounter with Heathcliff as we stretched towards home, but I divined instinctively that Catherine's heart was clouded now in double darkness. Her features were so sad they did not seem hers. She evidently regarded what she had heard as every syllable true. Well, and can you blame her? Look, Heathcliff is a lot of things. Is a liar one of them? Not really. Not really. I'm trying to think I'm trying to think back. He's not much of a liar. He will he will tell the truth. Alarmingly so at times. He can be devious, yes. But when confronted, it seems as though he tells the truth. I for one certainly believe that uh poor Linton is ill. I sir, I can believe that without a problem because he's a sickly boy, and uh, you know, he thought he had found some tender mercies, and and then they're snatched from him with no explanation, and he has taken to bed where he is being consumed by his own woes. The master had retired to rest before we came in. Kathy stole to his room to inquire how he was. He had fallen asleep. She returned and asked me to sit with her in the library. We took our tea together, and afterwards she lay down on the rug and told me not to talk, for she was weary. I got a book and pretended to read. As soon as she supposed me absorbed in my occupation, she recommenced her silent weeping. It appeared at present her favorite diversion. I suffered her to enjoy it a while, Then I expostulated, deriding and ridiculing all Mr. Heathcliff's assertions about his son, as if I were certain she would coincide. Alas, 
I hadn't the skill to counteract the effect his account had produced. It was just what he intended. Yes, of course, because he's always going to be one step ahead of you, Mrs. Dean. And I've said it before, I will say it again, she's handling this all incorrectly. Because if, for example, Kathy Jr. were to visit Wuthering Heights and to see that Linton really were in some health predicament, then all the trust that she has built up would then be destroyed and she would end up trusting Heathcliff's word over hers. And you don't want that. What you, what you want to do instead is say, is, is say, well, we'll go check on the young lad and we will reassure him that all is well, that he is a fine young gent, but that their relationship cannot continue, blah, 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 whatever it is. And she will always hold him in high regard and esteem, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, and, you know, that will be the end of it. You can't just dismiss this. You can't, Mrs. Dean, you can't just say none of it's true. You don't know. And you probably suspect it is true. You may be right, Ellen, she answered. But I shall never feel at ease till I know. And I must tell Linton it is not my fault that I don't write and convince him that I shall not change. What use were anger and protestations against her silly credulity? We parted that night, hostile, but next day beheld me on the road to Wuthering Heights by the side of my willful young mistress's pony. I couldn't bear to witness her sorrow, to see her pale, dejected countenance and heavy eyes, and I yielded, in the faint hope that Linton himself might prove by his reception of us how little of the tale was founded on fact. End of chapter. Well, so good. I mean, she's taken my advice. She's heading over there with the pony and the kid. And they're going to go see Linton. And, you know, he's going to be in bed all sad and wan and, you know, probably moaning and maybe even delirious like Kathy Sr. was. And then Hareton's going to come around and and say something, and then what? They're going to fall in love. He's going to fall in love with Hareton, and then Linton will die, or somebody's going to die. You know, hopefully not her dad soon. You know, hopefully Edgar will survive, but he's out of the picture for the moment. Anyway, you know, I'm just, there's all kinds of illnesses and and uh, terrible, terrible tidings still to come. I think we know that. So let us begin with chapter 23. My goodness, I like when we start new chapters. You know that. I get a little excited. The rainy night had ushered in a misty morning. Half frost, half drizzle, and temporary brooks crossed our path, gurgling from the uplands. My feet were thoroughly wetted. I was cross and low, exactly the humor suited for making the most of these disagreeable things. We entered the farmhouse by the kitchen way to ascertain whether Mr. Heathcliff was really absent, because I put slight faith in his own affirmation. Joseph seemed sitting in a sort of Elysium alone, beside a roaring fire, a quart of ale on the table near him, bristling with large pieces of toasted oat cake and his black short pipe in his mouth. Catherine ran to the hearth to warm herself. I asked if the master was in. My question remained so long unanswered that I thought the old man had grown deaf and repeated it louder. 
Nee, he snarled, or rather screamed through his nose. Nee, you mo go back where you come from. You must come back. You must go back where you come from. Oh. Joseph, cried a peevish voice simultaneously with me from the inner room. How often am I am I to call you? There are. Oh, I'm, I'm just guessing. It's it's Linton. I don't know. There are only a few red ashes now. Joseph, come this moment. Vigorous puffs and a resolute stare into the grate declared he had no ear for this appeal. The housekeeper and Hareton were invisible, one gone on an errand and the other at his work, probably. We knew Linton's tones and entered. Oh, I hope you'll die in a garret, starved to death, said the boy mistaking our approach for that of his negligent attendant. Well, I hope you'll die in a garret starved to death. So is this really the light-hearted lad, you know, the good-natured sprite who descended from those carriage steps all those months ago? No, he's a prick. He's a prick, and if he dies, that's fine too. He stopped on observing his error. His cousin flew to him. Is that you, Miss Linton? He said, raising his head from the arm of the great chair in which he reclined. No, don't kiss me. It takes my breath. Dear me. (laughs) Papa said you would call, continued he, after recovering a little from Catherine's embrace, while she stood by looking very contrite. "'Will you shut the door, if you please? "'You left it open, and those those detestable creatures "'won't bring coals to the fire. It's so cold.' "'So here we, here, we, here we see some evidence that perhaps, "'just perhaps, Heathcliff has endeavoured "'to make Linton's illness worse "'by forbidding Joseph from, from bringing coal to the fire.' Uh, it seems like that might be the case. He is trying to make him as feeble, emaciated, and, uh, you know, infirm as possible. So that when Kathy comes to visit, as he knew she surely must, she would be greeted by the sight of this pale and pathetic creature. I stirred up the cinders and fetched a scuttle full myself. The invalid complained of being covered with ashes, but he had a tiresome cough and looked feverish and ill, so I did not rebuke his temper. Well, Linton, murmured Catherine when his corrugated brow relaxed, are you glad to see me? Can I do you any good? Why didn't you come before? he said. You should have come instead of... Writing, it tired me dreadfully. Writing those long letters, it tired me dreadfully. Writing those long letters, my God. This is surely literature's most pathetic boy. I mean, where in what other book is somebody complaining of writing letters? If Frankenstein had grown winded from writing letters, we never would have heard the tale. And yet here we have this young lad. I'd far rather have talked to you. Now, I can neither bear to talk nor anything else. I wonder where Zilla is. Will you, remember Zilla's the servant gal, will you, looking at me, step into the kitchen and see? 
I had received no thanks for my other service, and being unwilling to run to and fro at his behest, I replied, Nobody is out there but Joseph. I want to drink, he exclaimed fretfully, turning away. Zilla is constantly gadding off to Gimmerton since Papa went. It's miserable, and I'm obliged to come down here. They resolve never to hear me upstairs. Is your father attentive to you, Master Heathcliff? I asked, perceiving Catherine to be checked in her friendly advances. Attentive? He makes them a little more attentive, at least, he cried. The wretches! Do you know? Miss Linton, that brute Hareton, laughs at me. I hate him, indeed. I hate them all. They are odious beings. Catherine began searching for some water. She lighted on a pitcher in the dresser, filled a tumbler, and brought it. He bid her add a spoonful of wine from a bottle on the table, and having swallowed a small portion, appeared more tranquil, and said she was very kind. And are you glad to see me? asked she, reiterating her former question, and pleased to detect the faint dawn of a smile. Yes, I am. It's something new to hear a voice like yours, he replied. But I have been vexed, because you wouldn't come, and Papa swore it was owing to me. He called me a pitiful, shuffling, worthless thing, and said you despised me, and if he had been in my place, he would be more the master of the Grange than your father by this time. But you don't despise me, do you, miss? I wish you would say Catherine or Cathy, interrupted my young lady. Despise you? No. Next to Papa and Ellen, I love you better than anybody living. I don't love Mr. Heathcliff, though, and I dare not come when he returns. Will he stay away many days? Not many, answered Linton, but he goes on to the moors frequently, since the shooting season commenced, and you might spend an hour or two with me in his absence. Do say you will. I think I should not be peevish with you. You'd not provoke me, and you'd be always ready to help me, wouldn't you? Yes, said Catherine, stroking his long, soft hair. If I could only get Papa's consent, I'd spend half my time with you. Pretty Linton, I wish you were my brother. And then you would like me as well as your father. <laughs> I'm sorry. Lin uh, doing Linton just sort of makes me laugh. Uh observed he more cheerfully. But Papa says you would love me better than him and all the world if you were my wife, so I'd rather you were that. No, I should never love anybody better than Papa, she returned gravely, and people hate their wives sometimes, but not their sisters and brothers. And if you were the latter, you would live with us, and Papa would be as fond of you as he is of me. Linton denied that people ever hated their wives, but Cathy affirmed they did, and in her wisdom, instanced her own father's aversion to her aunt. I endeavored to stop her thoughtless tongue. I couldn't succeed till everything she knew was out. Master Heathcliff, much irritated, asserted her relation was false. Papa told me, and Papa does not tell falsehoods. Oh, that's her. Papa told me, and Papa does not tell falsehoods, she answered pertly. My Papa scorns yours, cried Linton. He calls him a sneaking fool. Yours is a wicked man, retorted Catherine, and you are very naughty to repeat, to dare to repeat what he says. 
He must be wicked to have made Aunt Isabella leave him as she did. She didn't leave him, said the boy. You shan't contradict me. She did, cried my young lady. Well, I'll tell you something, said Linton. Your mother hated your father. Now then. Oh, exclaimed Catherine, too enraged to continue. And she loved mine, added he. You little liar. I hate you now, she panted and her face grew red with passion. She did, she did, sang Linton, sinking into the recess of his chair and leaning back his head to enjoy the agitation of the other disputant who stood behind. Hush, Master Heathcliff, I said. That's your father's tale too, I suppose. It isn't. You hold your tongue, he answered. She did, she did, Catherine, she did, she did. Cathy, beside herself, gave the chair a violent push and caused him to fall against one arm. He was immediately seized by a suffocating cough that soon ended his triumph. It lasted so long that it frightened even me. As to his cousin, she wept with all her might, aghast at the mischief she had done, though she had said and though she said nothing. I held him till the fit exhausted itself. Then he thrust me away and leant his head down silently. Catherine quelled her lamentations also, took a seat opposite, and looked solemnly into the fire. How do you feel now, Master Heathcliff? I inquired after waiting ten minutes. I wish she felt as I do, he replied. Spiteful, cruel thing. Hareton never touches me. He never struck me in his life. And I was better today, and there... His voice died in a whimper. I didn't strike you, muttered Cathy, chewing her lip to prevent another burst of emotion. He sighed and moaned like one under great suffering and kept it up for a quarter of an hour, on purpose to distress his cousin, apparently, for whenever he caught a stifled sob from her... He put renewed pain and pathos into the inflections of his voice. And we'll stop there. Well, that took a kind of unexpected turn. A lover's quarrel between Kathy uh, Jr. and young Linton as they choose sides in this battle of histories. Heathcliff poisoning the ear of his son, Kathy perhaps not enjoined with the full tale of her mother. I mean, it is true, let us say, that Kathy Sr. loved Heathcliff. That is certainly true. Did she hate Edgar? No, I don't think so. I think she felt trapped, but I think she did not hate him. She may have had some cross words for him from time to time in her catatonic state and out of it, but I don't think she hated him, and she probably hated herself most of all for putting herself in the predicament in which she found herself. But can you imagine the kind of kid that Kathy and Heathcliff would have had together? What a shit show that would have been, you know? I mean, his own genes, Heathcliff's own genes, are bad enough in poor, young Linton. But, my goodness, they would have had a 
They would have had a real spitfire if they'd had a kid. Well, I'm glad they didn't. And I'm glad she's dead. I'm glad he's on death's door. I hope Heathcliff dies. I hope they all die in a fire. Or starving in a garret. Anyway, let's leave it there for now. I've got a road trip to get ready for, you know. And uh, seven and a half hours in the car today. Seven and a half hours back tomorrow. That's just the way we do things. So, we'll leave it there. On a, And we'll pick it up next time on another vengeful episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. Enjoy your... What is it? Of Despond? Slew of Despond. Enjoy your slew of Despond. Adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedrin. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Ian Black. And get even more obscure content at our site, patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Thank you for listening.